This first episode has been by far the hardest one to make this season. This is the one where I tell my story. It's taken me over three weeks to write. I started off writing from the spaces of powerlessness, of not enoughness, from the lack of courage and purpose I had for so much of it. It put me in a funk. You know how when you're trying to play a character whose personality and situations you have so many problems with, and it's hard to take off the skin when you get off the stage? It was like that. But it's not a bad story. Not in the least. It's simply mine, and I love my life, so why am I painting my career this way? So I scrapped that telling and started again. Since then, I faced the voices that tell me I'm an imposter, and why would anyone want to hear my story, and in fact, who gives a shit what I think anyway, and surely my voice doesn't matter, and the years I spent working in this industry and trying to make it don't count, so why bother even making this podcast, and what the hell am I doing? (gasps) Which is why I was sure I had to write this. And share it. Because doing so is standing for everything this podcast is trying to stand for. Not doing so is caving to everything we're here to rail against. Because your voice matters, whoever you are. Even yours, Gwendolyn. And if I expect each of my guests to be as open and honest and vulnerable with their stories as they have been, then out of respect, I must figure out how to be that way with mine. So here goes. Welcome to Making It at an Opera, a podcast about what it really means to find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. I think the desire for these kinds of conversations started back in undergrad. In our small but mighty program at Columbus State University in South Georgia in the USA, Marietta Simpson had come to sing at our school and I was moved in that way that shakes your insides, you know? I watched her singing, drawing in all these people from all these different backgrounds in the audience, digging down deep to that spot where we all meet, where we're all human and hurt and vulnerable and full of potential and causing an earthquake with her voice. I wanted to do that. I wanted to connect like that. And so I'm sitting in the Q&A she gave the next day to the voice majors at our school, and I ask her, what was the most important thing you did to make it to where you are now? I remember she gave me a little smile and said, oh, everyone's path is different. I wasn't satisfied. I was so clueless. I wanted someone to paint it out for me, step by step, and tell me how to do this career. Someone just tell me how to make it an opera so I can stand on stage like Marietta Simpson and cause an earthquake. So I kept looking around, and I saw a couple of paths. I could stay in America, and I could get into a top-tier music school for my grad degree, I could make a lot of connections, get into some great young artist programs, and from there I'd surely get noticed by an agent, and then things would be set. 
that agent would get me gigs, and all I'd have to think about was making earthquakes. Or I could move to Germany, get into a grad program there, get into an opera studio in a German opera house, make great connections, sing for agents, and then things would be set. As I like to say now, unicorns and fairy dust would fly out of my ass and propel me straight to the Met or La Scala. Whatever was closer. I opted for Germany, mostly because the grad degree was free and I loved being an expat. I suppose the fairy dust was supposed to shoot me over to Milan or something. But that wasn't my path. And it isn't the path for most of us. I'm going to go ahead and let you know right here, I did not make it in opera. Not by those standards, anyway. If you're here to find out how to skip down the industry pipeline path like it's the yellow brick road, I am not your gal. And this is not your podcast. But if you started to wonder if there's another way, if what all your mentors and conservatories and hashtag thrill to announce posts have led you to believe a success in opera is starting to make you feel like you're the ugly stepsister trying to squeeze on Cinderella's shoe, I invite you to keep listening. Because I gotta say, for a long time, I felt a profound kinship with that ugly stepsister. Despite desperately wanting to get things right, to take that pipeline path and be crowned good enough by the people whose opinions I thought mattered, I think my career can be summed up by taking left turns when everyone was telling me to turn right. Sometimes for practical reasons, like needing to support myself. Sometimes because I just wanted to live my life differently and I wasn't interested in sacrificing my experiences on the altar of my art. And it's okay if you want to. I simply didn't. Like moving away from all my 10 years of connections in Germany to start life new in California in 2017. Because my husband and I wanted to try something new. We wanted adventure. Out of grad school in Berlin in 2011, I had two choices. Staying at the Universität der Künste in Berlin and getting their other masters in singing. Or taking an opera chorus gig south of Berlin in a small East German city named Dessau. Tired of being broke, tired of being in school, I took the chorus gig, even though I still dreamed of working as a soloist. What ensued were five years of relative success as an opera chorister in A and B houses in and around Berlin, peppered with small solo roles or covers in indie and B house productions, and stints as a freelancer where I built a small voice studio and helped start a collective of English-speaking expat singers in Berlin. Being in a professional chorus in Germany when you still want to make it as a soloist is an interesting experience. On the one hand, you're surrounded by some phenomenal musicians who have managed to secure a job that allows them the security of any other steadily employed person in any other field. Health insurance, dental, vision, enough to eat, pay rent and have some savings, six weeks paid vacation, paid sick leave. They have this way of being rooted that you rarely get to be around in other performers in a theater. Many work in the same theater with the same chorus for years. 
They have conflicts with each other, then resolution, then conflicts again. They see stage directors and maestros and artistic directors and soloists come and go. They know the theater and the repertoire inside and out. They know their own town and its history from long before the wall came down. They have this long view, like old married people, when hard stuff comes up. That this too shall pass. And you go into work day in and day out, and you sing. I admit I had never been incredibly precious about my instrument before performances. I never had rules around when I drank milk or how much or how loud I talked. I was careful about drinking, but mainly because I liked to sleep and it gave me insomnia. But I was kind of robust. And if there was any remaining preciousness around my voice, then being in the chorus broke me of it completely. While I was in the Deutsche Oper Berlin, I would sing a huge chorus opera like Rienzi or Peter Grimes, then come in the next morning to rehearse another like Lohengrin or Huguenots. I was glad that, as an alto too, as long as I kept my body relatively active, which isn't hard while being on stage so much, I could basically wake up, have a good yawn, talk to my husband, and my voice still felt warm from the night before. Of course, you need to practice and keep your technique in check, but you're basically always on. I'll never forget my first rehearsal with the Deutsche Oper Chorus. It was the triumphal march in Aida, while I was still in their extra chorus. 80 full-time choristers, 40 in the extra chorus, 120 of the finest voices Berlin could offer, opening their mouths for a massive Gloria. I thought I would crumple to the ground. I was so overwhelmed by the beauty that little rehearsal room could barely contain all of us. I thought we'd knock down the concrete walls. I've thought about that moment so many times lately. The great irony of the pandemic for me is that I spent seven years in and out of choruses, fighting every moment, wanting to stand in front as a soloist, wanting to be seen for my individual brilliance and artistry, and what I look forward to most is sinking my voice into the lush flow of a chorus again. To be lifted by that sound, weightless among many. People ask performers what they missed most during the pandemic. I miss that the most. But there's another side to being in a chorus when you really want to be a soloist. I often described it as career adjacent. As in, you're right next to the people doing the thing you dream of doing. You're getting to watch them how they move, how they interpret, how they take direction, what they need from their colleagues. This is so cool, and it's a massive plus. I've sung behind Joyce DiDonato. I've sung Circling Angela Mead. I've sung Marching to the Orders of Daniela Syndrome, just to name a few of my most favorite starstruck moments. But it began to feel like there was a sort of force field between us. I could work with them, but I could not pass through to the other side. Some of this makes a lot of sense. 
If you work in a chorus because you are choosing to be there, then having colleagues who see themselves as having settled for less can be extremely irritating. Especially when you are in a great chorus, and especially because that is how much of the opera world tends to see professional opera choristers. From conservatories with teachers who tell their students they'll stop teaching them if they join a chorus, to intendants who are irritated at the chorus's collective bargaining rights, to stage directors who are overwhelmed by what to do with the mass of sometimes unruly adults in front of them at rehearsal, to audience members who assume it's not even your actual job. This is a whole other rant for another day, but suffice it to say, much of opera would not exist without the chorus, so treating the chorus like it's a second-class inconvenience is just a way to breed malcontent and chip away at the art form, not to mention the solidarity we need among artists in all areas of the theater. So under no circumstances should you be pining to your opera chorus colleagues about what a great soloist you could have been. Keep it to yourself or get over it. Take pride in being where you are. If you can't, then leave. Casting out of choruses is also rare. It happens, especially in smaller houses with lower budgets. But there are parameters, often due to union organizing, so you're not overworked when you get to the job you're actually hired at the house to do. So thinking you're going to go from being in the chorus to being a soloist in the same theater is a bit delusional and perhaps also a bit unprofessional. So that's out. So I went to auditions where I had to give them my resume and explain where I'd been for two to four years while I had no roles. I told them I was on stage. I was in the chorus. Immediately, it felt like they would glaze over. Like, if I was a chorister, how could I be anything else? I had chosen my path. It felt kind of like being trapped, to be honest. I longed for someone to see me. I longed for the permission, for the validation that I felt like my soloist friends had. One of the shows I helped produce during that time was The Last Five Years by Jason Robert Brown. The first time it was performed in English in Berlin. I played Kathy Hyatt. I talk about this specifically because it was the first time I got a sense that I could give myself this kind of opportunity, where I could be fulfilled and proud of what I'd done, and no one had to give me any permission. At the time, I still didn't see it as completely legitimate, because no one I thought counted invited me to do it. No other producer or director or agent. I told me that I could sing Kathy. The artist in our collective agreed, and that was that. Then we did a ton of work to make it happen. That couldn't possibly count. It's so interesting how ingrained that is, isn't it? That some people count in our art and some don't. I remember a teacher in grad school kind of shrugging at the idea of self-produced work and saying something like... Well, it won't make you money, and you'll never be able to put it on a resume. Nobody cares about that kind of stuff. They couldn't have been further off from the truth. You get work because you're putting yourself out there. You get work because you're showing what you can do. You're showing up to your people again and again, doing your thing no matter who says you can't. Then the people who like what you do can find you. How the hell are they supposed to do that otherwise? 
And sure, the money isn't easy, but it's figure-outable. And who says that art is only successful if it's self-sustaining? It's a great point to get to, but it's not the ultimate judgment of the art's quality. It's a judgment about how marketable the art is, which are two important and very distinct things. But I didn't get that yet. Kathy was the most fulfilling, real role, the best piece of art I had made yet, and in my mind, it only kind of medium counted. It was a role I could put on my resume, even if our little startup collective had no name recognition. And it got in the paper. I also talk about this because I loved Kathy. I felt like I was her. I related to every bit of her professional life, to schlepping from one audition to the next, feeling that up and down of possibility and defeat. Feeling like anything you accomplish doesn't matter because it's not big enough. It's not that thing you set out for so it doesn't count. You feel invisible. You feel hidden. You don't realize it's you who's hiding. So when my husband and I decided to have our grand adventure and move to the U.S. in 2017, I threw myself into building my career. New country, new lady. I'd shake off that chorus label and ride high on my fancy EU credentials. Several months later, with hundreds of airline miles and months living out of a suitcase to get in front of anyone who would listen, I had myself a bit of a season. Five roles, three of them covers, while I sang chorus the rest of the time. Not bad. But it was towards the end of that season in 2018 when my husband and I started talking intensely about having a family. I realized my last trip to New York hadn't been as fruitful as I'd have liked. So my 2018-19 season didn't have as much as I would have hoped. If I was going to keep doing this, I would need another trip to New York. Another fall of trolling Yap Tracker, even though... With 33, I could already rule out over half the listings. Another schlep from audition to audition. Another hope that a few months later, I might have engagements for the following year. No part of me wanted to do it. Even the part of me that dives right in after all my sunken costs, thinking that this one more thing would make it all worth it. And after all, I'm not a quitter, am I? Even she couldn't care enough to do it all again. It was around that time I was doing two things. First, I was working with a well-established indie theater in San Francisco called Lamplighters Theater in their production of Pirates of Penzance. Lamplighters is this mix of community and professional actors, and the environment is that of a sort of riotous pride in what they're doing. They're not out to please anyone but themselves and their incredibly loyal audience. They do their work well and they win awards, but that is not what it's about. It's about making art and community. For the first time in a while, I felt like I was part of something where everyone there was purely there for the art. It made me realize how long I'd been showing up for work, with the art as a happy surprise if it showed up. I started to wonder if I was in this for the right reasons. Second, I was having my first ideas about a project that combined the stories of people experiencing housing instability with their performance of Schubert's Winterreise. I was workshopping it with a director friend of mine. I was looking for a pianist who would be interested. It was the first time where I felt like an idea I had 
was better and more important than what anyone else could hire me for. That it was possible for me to have ideas like that, and even though I was totally intimidated by the task of making it into a reality, I saw that it was possible. I could just make a thing. So speaking of making things, back to the baby conversation. This conversation wasn't just between me and my husband. It felt like there was this third person there. This unnamed, unknowable casting director or general music director or agent or whatever who would see all my talent and give me the chances I needed so my career could explode and everyone would love me and my voice enough to allow me to take off for a few months and pop out a baby. I realized with a jolt that I had put my life into this stranger's hands, into the expectations I had fed to me from industries in two different countries with an overarching narrative that there is one way to make it in this field, as long as you bent and contorted your life into the shape they needed from you. And from that legitimacy, I expected some kind of autonomy to come. Like when I make it, then I'll get to be an artist. Then I'll get to make my life. I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. To the massive metaphorical dung heap where that bullshit belongs. But not before beating myself up about it for a while. I felt so betrayed. By myself. By everything I had believed I should want and strive for. How dare I put my life in anyone else's hands but my own? How dare I put my voice in anyone's hands but my own? Whose life was this anyway? So I told myself I quit. Not that I quit singing. I couldn't do that. Not that I quit making my art. But that I quit putting my legitimacy, my voice, my significance in someone else's hands. For a while, it meant I had to tell myself I quit the industry. It ultimately meant that I had to quit thinking of myself as an opera singer and start thinking of myself as an artist. The differentiation has been huge. It's within my power to be an artist. In art, there are no rules. In art, we just get to make things. Opera for me was so fraught with judgment, so calcified in rules. I started to answer the question of what I want and decided I want to make something that matters. I also want to make a life I love. Getting those priorities to guide me, getting that kind of perspective, it changed things. In the three years since, I got pregnant and became a mother. I produced and performed the most important art I've done to date. I began to value the parts of myself that I took for granted. I started to integrate parts of my life that I had compartmentalized. Art, activism, writing. I started to let other people see what I made. Opportunities started to open because my focus wasn't so narrow anymore. I wasn't building my life so I could drop it when the next audition came up. I found new lines of work that opened up skills and talents I never knew I had. The amount of marketable skills we have as artists will blow your friggin' mind when you sit down and actually see it. 
I became a sort of project manager while working as a church administrator during the pandemic. I was good at it, but it wasn't really the job for me. Lately, I've been working as a sales copywriter for life coaches and spiritual healers, which I am shocked to find is both easy and fun for me, as well as incredibly valuable to them. Easy, fun, and valued. Three things I've rarely felt come together for me in classical music. From that, I've had the space and resources to dive deeper into activism I care about, and I've been able to keep my eyes open about how my art, my words, my voice, my ability to see connections between seemingly unrelated things can serve the cause. It was because of this that I got to be part of an effort in California that ended up funding landmark legislation that will support community-owned housing, take housing off the speculative market, and hopefully stem gentrification. Not to mention that in the process, we raised money to house a dear friend of mine who has become the face of this movement. None of this would have happened if I was still trying to make it because I would never have made the project that got me immersed in those circles in the first place. I would never even have met that friend. I would have still been too busy asking for permission. I kept singing. And yes, I kept singing in choruses before the pandemic shut things down. Only now, when I take a gig, I'm not looking for anything outside of it. I'm there just to be there to have an experience, to make music, and I have a freaking blast. My family and I have moved across the country back to Atlanta, where I'm from, a place where before I never thought I'd return, because I had no idea how you could get an opera career going there. Now I care more about being around a network of support. And the irony? Plenty of opera singers live here. It's one of the few interesting cities left where they can afford to live, and it's got a damn good airport. I've also faced some pretty mean voices in my head that tell me I don't matter, my art doesn't matter, and I should just keep my mouth shut. And that's okay. When you let go of a set of rules, of a prescriptive path, you have to learn how to value your own voice before you can even hear it. I'm not sure if I've completely let go of the industry because I know there are so many people in it and outside of it who are working to change things, who are working to prioritize the art, to be more thoughtful about how we tell stories. We're all looking around and thinking, but what is it for? Who cares that we're doing this? Why do I care that we're doing this? And if they don't have an answer they like, they're starting to make one. I want to be in community with these people. The people who want to make stuff that matters. I want to learn from people who have chosen their own path. Because I've learned that doesn't mean you failed. It means Marietta Simpson was right. You can't sketch out one path for a young singer and tell them that is what success means. Because looking at a young, ambitious artist and telling them there is one path is like clipping their wings. You have no idea which way they were going to fly. But the thing is, when you're young and you have no idea where to go with your life, you want to know what the flight patterns were. 
you need an idea. So we look at this industry pipeline, undergrad, master's degree, YAP representation, because we need to point our feet in some direction. And this is where the problem comes in. It's all about who can give you the job. It's all about preparing yourself to be part of an industry rather than to shape an art form. It's all about being the prettiest cog in the wheel rather than what you want to do with the tradition you've been given. There is always someone between you and your legitimacy. There is always someone who has to sign off on your art, this thing you have invested your life in, this thing you have gone into debt for. And when you get into that power dynamic, a lot of shit can go down. Like no one being surprised, in the least, that Me Too was all over the opera industry. But that's only one example. In classical music, we tend to teach and think in frameworks of this is the right way to do things and this is the wrong way to do things, rather than this is the structure of what exists. Now what do you want to do with it? We tell students that there isn't much work out there, so they have to be 10 times better than the next guy and make even more connections, rather than teaching them how to produce their own opportunities and hire each other. How to look around at their community and see where their voices and their art can be of service. How the path to New York or Milan shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be finding what it is you want to say if ever you were to get there, if ever you were to have that kind of platform. And then we wonder when opera is often accused of being stuck in time, of being racist, sexist, classist, sizist, ableist, and out of touch. Here's what I know to be true. It's because we're telling the artist making it that their point of view doesn't really matter. That they must do as they're told so they can get the next job. This is a conversation going on right now across the board in the opera industry of how to fix these things. I believe, I know, opera is experiencing an exciting awakening right now because of it. This interview series is my way of contributing to the conversation. It's my way of finding my own answers to the question I asked Miss Simpson by talking to people who have gone in all sorts of directions with their lives since getting their opera degree. All of which are legitimate. All of which I would call successful because all of them have found their voice in the most profound way possible. I have learned so much from these conversations. The people in this season run the gamut. A baritone who left opera to become a gospel sensation, discovering that his gift all along was building community around his music. A pair of boss sopranos who are rethinking professional education and access in opera by building their own educational platform and programs that meet artists at eye level. The kind of programs they wish they could have had themselves. A baritone who left opera to become a dancer, a director, a playwright, a songwriter, and now the world's first feminist, sex-positive drag cow, I kid you not, and he has discovered he's here to give voice to those who literally can't speak for themselves. A soprano and a mezzo who are radically changing the conversation around young artist programs and workers' rights inside of the opera industry in the U.S., all while weaving in deep philosophical discussions on the wider implications of it all. 
a mezzo and composer who has begun to rethink the size of opera by taking it down to its elemental pieces of storytelling so she can make her work on her own without permission. And a mezzo who, as her industry career was just taking off, decided to put it all on the line by speaking up publicly about the impact of racism in opera, deciding that if the industry couldn't handle her using her voice, then she didn't want to be in the industry. You'll notice the through line in this season is that everyone has remained with their art. Everyone has kept making it just on their own terms. Everyone, in fact, has stayed in the music industry, if not the opera industry, and everyone still performs. In shaping this podcast, I've realized there's so many facets to making it on your own terms. It's a process with so many different outcomes. This felt like a good place to start. I remember whenever I would question what I was doing, the thought of leaving opera felt unimaginable. And the thought of being able to make what I wanted within opera didn't even cross my mind. But I think allowing that imagination out of a place of empowerment is healthy. It's how we keep from being trapped. You can make or do anything you want. You just have to decide what it is and that it's okay for you to want it, even if it doesn't fit into what you've been told you should want. You can even completely leave opera and the music industry, but we'll save that for a later season. To support you in your process of making it on your own terms, I've made two things to kind of accompany this season. If you go to makingitinopera.com, you can get access to a Google spreadsheet I'm adding to as I go, with links to resources and inspiration from folks who are changing the conversation about how we tell stories and how we train artists. At makingitinopera.com, you can also sign up for the newsletter. When you do, you'll get the audition pep talk series. It's a series of emails that will go out to you periodically after you sign up to help both pump you up and ground you in your worth as an artist and your ability to make whatever you want. If you sign up now, it should get you through audition season. And listeners, I want this series to be a conversation between all of us. If you have an opinion, some wisdom to share about what it means to make it in opera, please record it on a voice memo and send it to me at makingitinopera at gmail.com. That's making it without the G. I may feature your voice on an upcoming podcast. I've also got a way you can support the podcast so that me and my team can keep making it this consistently and pouring the kind of necessary time into it to make it like we like it. You can also find that at makingitinopera.com. You can choose to donate once or become a supporting member. In either case, you have my sincere gratitude, and I hope to repay you with some enlightening, paradigm-shifting conversation. My hope in all of this is that you'll join us, that you'll start to see where your power is here, where your voice matters, and that you'll start making it too. And I hope you'll keep listening. This podcast is a production of Sounds Like Cool, with editing by me and production help from Sarah Decker. Theme music is Our Block Party by Reactor Productions. I hope you enjoyed the show. 
I'm Gwendolyn Kuhlman. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.